Hi, and welcome to the RCH Kids Health Info Podcast, the podcast for parents about common child health concerns. I'm Dr. Margie Danchen, paediatrician and your host for today, and I'm joined by co-host and good friend, Dr. Lexi Frydenberg. Hi, Margie. In this episode, we're talking about type 1 diabetes and how it affects children and families and what it means for day-to-day life. Our guests include a specialist in diabetes, plus a very special guest to give us the parent perspective. From the Royal Children's Hospital, Melbourne, this is the Kids Health Info Podcast. So Lexi, it's great to get an opportunity today to chat about diabetes. Many sort of friends and, and, and parents don't know a lot about diabetes. And, you know, for me personally, um, I have a very good friend who has two boys with diabetes and chatting to her, thinking about today, you know, really interesting to hear her story about just the impact it has on their family and the fact that she says she's never had a full night's sleep um, in the last sort of 10 years since her boys were diagnosed. I do remember when I was a med student, I um, was a voluntary leader on diabetes camp. And I asked some of the parents who were dropping their kids off, what is the most challenging thing about having your child with diabetes? And they said, it's this, letting them go on camp, letting them go on sleepovers, letting go. And when I asked some of the other leaders who were young adults with diabetes, what were their challenges? They said, trying to be, in inverted commas, a normal child, being able to play sport, being able to sleep over just living life like other children. So today we're really going to focus on type 1 diabetes. It's a great opportunity today to talk about what we'd like everyone in the community to think about when when talking about diabetes. And also we really want to touch on um, what schools need to be well equipped to support kids with diabetes. So we do have two um, fantastic guests today. We have Dr Fergus Cameron, who's a specialist in diabetes and the Director of Endocrinology at the Royal Children's Hospital. And we have Sarah Tian, who's a teacher and a parent of a, an 11-year-old boy with diabetes. So welcome to you both, Fergus and Sarah. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. Sarah, let's start with you. It'd be lovely to hear your perspective um, as a mum and, and just your son Finn's journey from perhaps, you know, when he was first diagnosed with diabetes and sort of how that felt for you. Okay, so Finn was 15 months when he was diagnosed he um, he was barely talking. He had one or two words, and one of the words was dibba dibba, and that was his word for drink. And he was saying dibba dibba an awful lot. He was very thirsty. Um, he was flooding his nappies. He was very tired. And uh, fortunately for us, I had a bit of background knowledge about diabetes, and um, I knew the symptoms. And so I took Finn to the GP, and they ordered a a urine test and that was tricky Um, and then in the time that it took for the results to come back he became quite unwell. Our instincts told us to get him into the hospital quick smart so we did and um, straight away uh, he was they did a blood test and um, it was apparent it was diabetes. So he was in the resus bay for overnight and then in intensive care for couple of days and then on the ward for a week. It was very challenging. And it's incredibly young to, uh, to be diagnosed. Yeah. Um, and he wasn't able to tell you what he was feeling. So you were very intuitive to work out there is something significantly wrong. Let's go to the hospital. That first week in hospital must have been overwhelming. What were the things that helped 
you understand what diabetes is and come to terms with what was going on? Uh, I think the staff in the hospital were very supportive and um, informative and uh, they put our minds at ease that it wasn't something that we could have prevented. Um, It was just what it is. Um, And so we, we found a way through it we picked a path through it and um, realised that it's manageable and, um, you know, it's fine, really is. And Fergus, you have been managing uh, Finn's diabetes for a very long time now. I'm not sure whether it was right from the start, but, um, you know, it, at that first sort of meeting with a parent when it's a, you know clear that the child does have diabetes, how, how do you approach that conversation with parents? Every situation is different. It, it, the families are different. The age of kids is different, and their needs are different. But what's common, and I'm hearing it from Sarah right now, is just the shock and the grief um, of being told that your child has a, uh, as of now, a lifelong condition that can't be cured, and that is tricky to manage. And that is pretty raw. The emotions that we offer encounter, and it, it's emotions are uh, often feelings of misplaced guilt, uncertainty, uh, why me, why us. So the issues that I like to address head on are the why us, why me. Why my why, child. Yeah, why. Wh- and, um, one of the great problems with the type of diabetes that children get, which is type 1 diabetes, is that it shares its surname with type 2 diabetes, which is extraordinarily common. And what happens then is that a lot of uh, the the information about type 2 diabetes spills over into type 1. <clears throat> and so there are a lot of misperceptions and misconceptions about type 1. And uh, uh, so families are often uh, told by well-meaning relatives or friends, oh, but your child's not overweight. Oh, but, you know, oh, it must have been that birthday cake. There was too much sugar in that birthday cake. Or it's that, you know, northwest wind we had two weeks ago. You know, every urban myth... Yeah, and furphy sort of comes into play. So we've we've got to dispel that. So so maybe just spend a second explaining the difference between type one and type two diabetes for parents listening. So they're fundamentally very different conditions. Uh, the the only thing they have in common really is that they both result in high blood glucose. Type one diabetes is uh, an autoimmune condition. So your body uh, essentially rejects itself. Uh, your body reacts against the part of the body that produces insulin, the pancreas, um, and it does that by producing antibodies against it, which it shouldn't do, but it does, and we don't know why it does. Um, And then you are unable to produce insulin, and then you become sick. Type 1 diabetes is usually a one-off. It's usually not very genetic, so most families will only have one affected person. Type 2 diabetes is quite strongly genetic, so often families have a very strong family history of type 2, it occurs, generally speaking, later in life, although we are starting to see it in some teenagers now. And more often than not, people have lifestyle issues, metabolic syndrome, they're overweight. Not always, um, but, but more often than not. So it's a very, very different condition. Uh, type 1 diabetes, you need to be treated with insulin from day one. There's no other option. Type 2 diabetes, there are a range of uh, treatments of which insulin is one. And so there's a lot of confusion between the two. And in type 2 diabetes, what's happening with the insulin there? The problem with type 2 diabetes is not lack of insulin, it's that you're resistant to insulin. And so uh, the, the treatments there are focused in trying to increase your sensitivity to insulin, trying to get you to lose weight, lifestyle, 
changes. None of that, of course, works in type 1 diabetes where you don't have any insulin or don't have enough insulin. So today we're really going to focus on type 1 diabetes, which is the diabetes we see mostly in our young children. And now what would you say are the biggest challenges for Finn? So he's 11 now, um, obviously, you know, grade 5, you know, active, incredibly sporty boy. Um, What are the big challenges for him at the moment with his diabetes? Um, It's sort of a, a burgeoning independence. He really wants to be independent and normal um, and we're trying to let go and it's it's a kind of a, a tug of war between us letting go and him um, taking control. So, you know, there's a bit of occasional conflict there but the other thing is feeling, uh, like I was saying, normal amongst his peers. Um, that That is probably the biggest thing for him. So sort of fitting in socially with his peer group. Yeah, yeah. Sarah, for parents listening who maybe aren't familiar, um, for Finn, what does a typical day look like? Um, So in the morning he gets up and checks his continuous glucose monitor and he will also do a, a finger stick blood test to just confirm his blood glucose level before um, giving himself some insulin. He has two types of insulin, one's long-acting, one's short-acting, and uh, the long-acting keeps him safe throughout the 24-hour period and then the short-acting matches his food intake. Then he'll have breakfast and uh, off he'll go to school and he'll keep checking his CGM, his continuous glucose monitor, throughout the day. He has a smartphone which talks to a smartwatch and that has alarms that go off if his blood sugar goes too high or too low. He will have a snack if he needs to. He can have snacks in class if he needs to. If the sugar goes low. If his sugar goes low. Then at lunchtime, he'll do another blood test beforehand and he'll have a bit of insulin before lunch. The school nurse supervises, but he does it himself. And then he'll, again, monitor himself throughout the afternoon. And if he has sport, he might have a bit of extra carbohydrate before. And then, again, dinner, another blood test, confirm what the continuous glucose monitor is saying. And insulin, short-acting insulin. And then... Night times. <laughs> yeah, so it's a lot, isn't it, mm, during the yeah, day? Yeah, it is a lot. And how does he feel about having to go to the nurse at recess and lunchtime or to have his insulin? For a lot of kids, having to leave class or do something different than other children has quite an impact. Uh, he he would prefer not <laughs> to have to go to have the nurse. She's a lovely nurse, but he'd prefer not to have to be different and um, do things differently, Yeah. And Fergus, Finn comes to see you um, every sort of three or four months for a checkup at the hospital. What are the sort of things you look at when you see Sarah and, and Finn of his management? Well, I've seen an amazing journeys, what I see. <laughs> um, so there's a routine sort of standard of care, I suppose, for all kids with type 1 diabetes. And um, whilst uh, the time they come into hospital for their diagnosis, that's probably, for most of them, their only time they're ever admitted to hospital. Uh, and the focus is on the after-sales service, um, which is pretty stereotypical. So we like to see kids every three to four months. Um, we check the usual things you do with kids, their height and their weight, um, how they're going at school, all that sort of thing. And the, the specific things we check for diabetes, we do a blood test so called an HbA1c test. 
that gives us a very good idea what their average glucose control has been like over the last three months. And as we build up a profile of all those HbA1c tests over time, that's the best predictor currently we have of their health in 10, 20 years' time. So there's a lot of focus placed on that because it's um, a very strong predictor of uh, adult health and, and that's what we're all about. We would adjust uh, insulin doses accordingly. We would talk about there's many more options in terms of how we treat diabetes and some of those options are... Um, are really useful for different kids at different stages, for teenagers versus young kids and and the like, kids who are sporty versus kids who more prefer video games. So, you know, we we don't have a one-size-fits-all. We try and sort of tailor things for individual preference and need. And then we plan to see them again in three months. And Sarah, when Finn is a bit unwell, if he has an intercurrent illness, his sugars might go up or he's a bit unstable, you can call the hospital for some support? Absolutely, and we certainly have done that a number of times over the years. Um, it's amazing. You just you call up the hospital and they either get put straight through or someone calls you straight back and they guide you through what you need to do. I think it's really reassuring to know, Fergus, that most children don't have multiple hospitalisations and this is managed as an outpatient. You did mention that the reason we want to keep children's HbA1c, so their glucose control, quite good is to stop consequences later in life. What are those consequences? What do you tell parents? So thankfully these are extremely rare now, but when I started diabetes longer ago than I'd like to admit. They weren't, they weren't <laughs> rare. Um, but the things that we are trying to avoid are uh, what, what are called the complications of diabetes and, and these are uh, kidney disease, eye disease, premature heart disease and, and nerve disease. When I was I started in diabetes game, about one in three of our kids by 18 had early changes of kidney disease. Now that's almost unheard of. We just don't see it. So that, you know there have been a huge sort of uh, successes in this field because we keep these A1Cs low. That's amazing. So we mentioned continuous glucose monitoring, and that's been one of the massive changes over time. Fergus, can you tell us a little bit about that and you know what you've seen over the years? So the continuous glucose monitoring as a technology really came into Australia in experimental form, I guess is the best way to put it, or trial form in the early 2000s. And we were actually the first authorised prescriber in Australia to use it. So we've had an involvement with CGM going back quite a way. It really has become widely available to kids under 21 since 2017. So it's now, you know, broadly available. The technology of continuous glucose monitoring has uh, improved iteratively since over the last two decades, but it continues to have limitations, and those limitations are not because of the machines themselves. The limitations are due to physiology, and by that I mean that these devices uh, sit under the skin and they're measuring glucose concentration in the tissue under the skin. They're not measuring glucose concentrations in the bloodstream. In the blood. And where do they sit on the body, Fergus? Where do kids wear them? So that depending on which device you use, they can sit in a variety of places. They might sit on the uh, upper arm, they might sit on your tummy wall or your buttock or, or sometimes on your thigh. Uh, it depends uh, which device you've got, whether the kid's particularly sporty, you know, all sorts of things like that. Mm. Um, but there's a, you know, there's a number of places and they move them around in an individual child. So 20 years ago or so when I sort of was doing the diabetes job, finger prick testing was the go-to to measure blood glucose. Sarah did mention that Finn still does a finger prick test 
after the CGM. Are we going to be done away with fingerprint testing in the future? That's that's what the CGM companies would have you believe. Um, The big marketing sort of push about CGM was that it would get rid of the need for fingerprint testing. And and fingerprint testing, let's not dance around it, it's a pain. It's messy, it hurts. It's awkward. Uh, it's awkward. It's and awkward. It, you know, yeah. nobody likes finger stick testing. So something that potentially could do away with that, it's got huge appeal. The problem, as I said, is the CGM testing is, is very accurate at measuring tissue glucose, but that doesn't tell you what blood glucose yeah. is. And really, if, if you are feeling unwell, you need to know what your blood glucose is. So uh, the recommendation for all CGM devices is that if you get a, uh, a result that is very high or very low, that we always check with a finger stick. Sometimes some of the CGMs require calibration with it, with the blood glucose. And we continue to encourage our families to do finger sticking because if you stop doing it, you get out of practice. And when you need to do it, you haven't got the gear with you or anything like that. Sarah, you were saying uh, to me earlier that um, obviously the, the CGM alarms if his sugar goes low, um, but overnight if that alarm goes off, Finn doesn't wake up. So no. that's really tricky for you. Unfortunately, Finn doesn't wake up to his alarms, although it does mean he gets a better night's sleep, which is good. But for my husband and I, it means that we're up and uh, administering jelly snakes as needed um, and occasionally insulin, but not very often. But you can't give him a jelly snake while he's asleep without him waking uh, up, can you? He he munches it half Halfway. asleep. <laughs> we, we watch him chew it. <laughs> and, uh, he, yeah, he... Subconsciously, I think he knows what's going on. Fergus, is that common that kids don't wake up to the alarm at all? Very common. One of the issues about these devices, they're better now than they used to be, but false alarms were huge. You know, these devices, ironically, that were meant to make life easier and uh, more comforting overnight, actually could generate more anxiety by having all these alarms, and not only at night, but also during the day. The alarm would go off, it might say you're low, you do a finger prick, and you're not low. Um, and that can lead to enormous frustration. You know, you, you combine sleep deprivation with uh, false information and people can get pretty grumpy. And so a significant number of families stop using CGM after experiences yeah, like right. that. Like all technologies, they're double-edged swords and there are unforeseen consequences. And it's not the technology per se, it's how families use the technology, mm. what their thresholds of um, concern and anxiety are and how they manage that. And apart from technology, who else is involved apart from the diabetes um, doctors in the team? Does does Finn see a dietitian? Does he have to watch what he eats? Do you have a psychologist to support you after the diagnosis? After the diagnosis, we were met with a team of diabetes nurse educators, dietitians. I think there was a social worker involved as well. And as time went on, uh, we connected with the dietitians and the nurse educators and then as you become more experienced in the management of the diabetes, you can sort of go it alone a bit more. But it's nice to know that you can always call mm. the hospital and get that support if you need it. And what, uh, how do you adjust uh, Finn's diet? What are the sort of key things you focus on? Uh, look, he eats a pretty normal diet, really. He doesn't miss out on much. But, yeah, he does still have to be careful of how much sugar he takes in mm. um, and you know, whether it's high GI or low GI food and how much and when. And there are a lot of things to think about still, Mm. yeah. One thing that um, you mentioned to me was that Finn experiences a bit of fatigue. What what, what do you think that's related to? Is that diet related? Is that more sort of some instability in the sugars or...? Uh, I think think that's management fatigue. And that's what, what, as, as a parent, I've experienced... Um, 
not so much a physical fatigue, but just a the, the constant the, thinking, the, about the constant the thinking and decision making, and the, the, the cognitive load that's involved in the management um, it takes its toll. Yeah. Mm. Okay. So, Sarah, you mentioned before what impact the diagnosis of diabetes has had on Finn, and that he just wants to be a normal child and play sport, etc. As parents, you mentioned sleep deprivation. What impact has it had on you and what are some of the big challenges you as parents have faced? I have had to become a lot more organised and vigilant and lucid in terms of being on top of the management and flexible and open-minded about the curveballs that diabetes can throw you. Um, Yeah, I think we've become and Finn especially has become a resilient person. And Fergus, what's some of the challenges that you um, hear from families, particularly around the, the care of kids with diabetes? What Sarah just touched on, cognitive fatigue and the emotional burden that goes with that is huge. You know, Finn was diagnosed so young, he probably has no idea what it's like not to have diabetes. Mm. And so it's always been part of his sort of world. There's a sense, as Sarah's touched on, a sense of being different and not wanting to be different and just wanting to fit in. I think that one of the really tough things about diabetes is it's just inexorable. It's there every day. You don't get a holiday. You've got to do the same things day in, day out. And if you get it wrong, the consequences are immediate. And then you have the worry about long-term complications just sort of hovering there. And really the focus for us is to keep people as healthy as we can so that when there is a cure, that they're in great shape and that they can avail themselves of that and then you know have a better life at that point. I think in the interim, the promise of technologies has been to reduce that cognitive burden so that more things are automated, that you don't have to think it through so much. But then that introduces its own stress because you've got to trust the black box. And when you have grown up with diabetes in a very intuitive uh, way, as as Sarah and Finn and, and their family have done, they are the real experts at Finn's diabetes, more than we are. And they know all sorts of things about Finn's diabetes that you're not going to read about in textbooks. And they know that when um, Finn has a bowl of spaghetti bolognese at home, he needs X number of units of insulin, regardless of what the books say. And they know that on a school sports day, his blood sugars might go up or they might go down or whatever, but just from lived experience. Now, technologies don't know those things. And technologies are based on average experiences. And so... As I said, technologies can be a a double-bladed sword. So we've talked about parents being the experts of their child diabetes. We might shift gear at the moment and talk about as uh, parents, if if we have kids over who has a friend with diabetes or in the school setting, what do you feel parents and teachers need to know about diabetes? That for the most part, it's, you know, everything will be absolutely fine. It's really very manageable and children with diabetes and adults with diabetes can live very normal lives. And almost to step back the sort of fear and concern That's about right. diabetes in yeah. some ways and normalise it so that you know kids do feel that they can fit in socially more easily. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Okay, now I think what I'd really like to do, um, Fergus, is talk a little bit about the Diabetes in Schools program and what that has meant um, for kids, uh, you know, going to school and the support that they receive. Can you talk a little bit about that? So just to set this up, type 1 diabetes is one of the most common chronic conditions in childhood. In Australia, about one and a half kids per thousand under 15 will have it. So most schools 
will have several kids going through with diabetes. So this is not a rare situation. This is a common situation. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. And if you think about it, most kids spend most of their lives at school. And the other aspect of this is that the way we manage diabetes now, more of those management tasks are going to fall during school times, particularly with technologies where you get a constant stream of information. And, you know, that will happen during school and you may be asked to do something at school and the parents might be seeing that information on their phone as well and they might contact the school and say, look, things are not right, what are you doing? You know, so... Like it or not, schools are having to be more involved with diabetes care. Diabetes Australia uh, have been putting a lot of thought into this. There is now a, a structured program to uh, support parents and teachers to kids with diabetes at schools uh, that become increasingly specific to the particular students. So the first two phases are sort of really online resources. Uh, the first phase is very general knowledge about diabetes, only takes 30 minutes. The second um, is one and a half hours, again, online. So this is about education of teachers in the school Exactly. Setting. And so when, when the uh, teachers who are nominated to support that child uh, at, at a particular school have done those first two tranches of information, at that point then we get highly specific and then uh, there'll be a visit to the school by uh, a diabetes educator to talk specifically about that child's particular healthcare needs um, and, and what the school will need to do to support that. And that, that can be up to three hours of a face-to-face meeting. So it's quite it's a... It's quite intensive. It, yeah, it is. And it, it's a significant commitment both on the part of the school and on a part of the healthcare providing team. And, of course, kids' management changes. So it's not like you have one of these visits for the whole 12 years of schooling. Yeah. Uh, and, and kids transition. They transition from primary to secondary school. They transition from different treatment modalities. Uh, and then there are things like school camps or overseas trips or, you know, all sorts of sort of little curveballs along the way that need to be dealt with. And, um, uh, and, and they don't necessarily need to go through that full process. But again, the after-sale service is huge. So it sounds like, you know, there's been huge changes in how we approach education of schools, but, you know, it will make a big difference to our children in schools having this support structure around them. And we've talked about the challenges of someone of Finn's age, a younger child, but I imagine as, you know, as Finn becomes a teenager and teenagers tend to take risks, it's part of their normal developmental phase, that that will pose a whole nother set of challenges. Yeah. Have you thought about that? Is yeah, I, I, I have sort of thought about the fact that you can't really rebel against diabetes because diabetes yeah. will always win. So that's something that Finn's going to, you know, he's already aware of it, but as a teenager and wanting more and more independence, that's going to become a, more of a challenge, I think. Fergus, what are some of the conversations you have with your teenage patients? Uh, so, uh, well, it's all about safety nets. Yeah. So, you know, th- there, are, there are teenage behaviours that are inevitable. You know, as those frontal lobes develop and you know, some good choices <laughs> are made and some not so good choices are made. And that, that's how we learn. And so it's just not something you can say, oh, no, I want you to go and live in a convent and have a nice clean life. You know, kids do what they do. So it's really putting safety nets around those things. Now, the, probably the biggest safety net you can create is entrenched and learned patterns of behaviour, roughly good choices, you know, so that if kids are doing aspects of diabetes self-care that they're just doing without thinking about that's just part of their routine 
then those behaviours are likely to persist despite you know all the things that you do in your later teenage years. The man, if you can get those behaviours entrenched and mm. and going, that, automatic, that, yeah, and that works if you've got a child who's diagnosed early. It's tough if you diagnosed as a teenager. Yeah, yeah. So that that's huge. Um, then there's the next safety net is the awareness. And not just an awareness of the adults in that child's life, but their peer group. Yeah. Because yeah. kids turn to their peers for advice and Absolutely. emotional support. So there needs to be an awareness that's non-stigmatising, non-judgmental. And most kids, I've got to say, the, the generation today is so much nicer to each other than we yeah. were in supportive. So that's the hope of humanity, I think, despite all the doom and gloom. And then having the next sort of safety net is having a plan B. You know, what happens yep. if, if it all goes wrong? And, What's and, the number of the hospital? When yeah, do you call an ambulance? And, and a various complexity. You know, what, what happens if you're in Chapel Street versus what happens if you're on a school camp up in the mountains versus what happens if you're overseas? So, you know, those, those plans need to be thought through. And, and like all things, if you go through it and go, well, what would you do if? And then you've really just, you've got to let them do their thing. Yeah, got to let kids be kids. So, Sarah, last thoughts from you for parents listening. What would you like people to sort of take away from this discussion about diabetes in kids? It's really important that everyone understands that whilst diabetes is a big thing, it doesn't have to define you. And you can go on and do all sorts of amazing things and lead a wonderful life. Yeah, beautiful, positive message. Thanks so much. Well, listen, it's been a fantastic discussion today and I hope that parents listening have appreciated your personal insights and you sharing your family journey and Finn's story. So thank you so much. And to Fergus as well. And what a special relationship to have had Fergus as, you know, Finn's uh, paediatrician for such a long period of time. So thank you to both of you. It's been my pleasure. Anytime. Thanks, Fergus, and thanks, Sarah. That's been a fascinating discussion. We hope you've enjoyed today's podcast. We'll have many resources linked in our show notes. And if you've enjoyed this episode or learnt something, please subscribe and share it with your friends. Thanks for listening. Information provided in this podcast is general in nature and is intended to support, not replace, discussions with your doctor or healthcare professional. If you are concerned about your child please consult your local healthcare professional for further advice.